Father, as our worship again brings us to the cross of Jesus, we remember again that He, the Son of God, suffered more than we could ever, ever imagine for each one of us because He loved us. And Father, we pray, help us to see what we owe You as our response in return. Too often as we live our Christian lives, too many of us were looking for ways in which You will bless us, whereas, Father, we know that the right way is that we should be looking for ways in which we can live to glorify You. So, Lord, speak to us and direct us in this way tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. I haven't watched a, a lot of this year's Olympics. There have been many great stories, I know, and unbelievable performances. But although Rio is an incredible venue, got to say that with Marcus there at the front, but still, I haven't watched too much. Maybe the time difference is in part to, to blame for that. Maybe it's because I'm just a, a grumpy old man. You know, the ever-increasing number of so-called sports taking part, apparently dodgeball is being considered, and this is serious, for the next Olympics. I believe surely British Bulldog has to be the next serious contender. And before my last Olympics on this earth, I hope that tiddlywinks will at last be given its deserved place on the world stage. And I want to tell you that Robbie and I may well take part. And by that time, we will be a true vision in Lycra. <laughs> Just try and get that out of your mind. But for me, one scene from the Olympics did jump out at me. And it, it was as I was just watching the news on Wednesday at lunchtime. And it was a, an unusual camera angle. I think that's what really caught my attention. It was the moment when the cyclist Jason Kenny won his sixth career gold medal, bringing him level with Chris Hoy. Um, in this, you could, you could actually, in the camera shot, you could see the BBC commentary box and you could also see the finish line where Jason Kinney won by, by fractions of an inch. You could see it in, in the same shot. And, and what stuck out for me was Chris Hoy in that exact moment. He was jumping up and down. He was punching his fist in the air. He was clapping his hands together, not all at the same time. But anyway, and he was screaming and shouting. He was doing everything in his power to try and push Jason Kenny over the line. Now, this was a man, remember, watching somebody else equal his gold record haul. With there being every possibility that in future Olympics, four years' time, Jason Kenny will push well beyond his total. And a few different thoughts struck me as I watched this. One was, for instance, could you imagine Ronaldo doing the same? If he didn't know, as Chris Hoy didn't know, that the cameras were on him, say if he were sitting in the stand watching Gareth Bale score a hat-trick for Real Madrid in a Champions League final, I don't think so. But what also struck me as I watched this is, is how well this, this parallels with, with what we actually see in, in the book of Acts regarding the relationship between Barnabas and Paul. Remember we looked at Acts at the beginning 
Barnabas is the one whose name comes first. He's the leader. He's the more experienced, the mature Christian. But as time progresses, the roles switch around. Paul's exceptional gifts, his character and personality meant that he moved into the leadership role. And all of this without a murmur of complaint from Barnabas. And what all this underlines for me is that it's not that people can't be nice and can't be good who know Jesus, who aren't Christians. It's not that. Because Chris Hoy, he stood out in what he did. Rather, it's that Jesus, as by faith he comes into our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's that he can make everyone, even good people, nice people by nature, he can make them better and nicer than they already were. And some of us who aren't so good, he can do a wee bit of a job in us as well. However, let's be clear here tonight. No one, Christian or non-Christian, no one can emulate the kind of qualities of character that Jesus demonstrates in this situation he deals with here in John's Gospel. As he faces a crisis, with the cross here in all its horror looming ever closer, a crisis the like of which goes far beyond that which any other human being will ever experience. So then I want to say we can learn tonight from Jesus' example. We can, about the kind of qualities God loves to see his people demonstrate in their crises. And we can, to a degree, follow in Jesus' footsteps. We can, as we too live, as we live in the power of the Spirit. But we cannot replicate Jesus' response because Jesus is unique. Before, though, we, we move on to look at some of the ways in, in which Jesus responded, I think it's necessary first to deal with some of the criticisms made, not only about John, because other Gospels come in for, for their share, but certainly criticisms made particularly of John's account of the events leading up to the cross. For instance, there are details that John misses out that are included in the other Gospels. Just one example, John makes no mention of Judas marking Jesus out, betraying him with a kiss. Whereas this is to be found in all the other Gospels. So how do we reply to this? Well, a kind of simple first stage reply, I think, would be to say that as John's Gospel was written later than the other Gospels, should we then be too surprised to find him including uh, ingredients, details that the other gospel writers had not included, had not had time or space to include, details about things that had actually happened, which we would, you know, have otherwise not known. Why would we expect him to write exactly the same account as the other gospel writers? But the connected, and I believe far more significant reason why John differs at some points from the other Gospels in the details that he includes and also the details that he excludes is because John, while he was telling the same basic story as the other Gospel writers, yet like them, he has his own particular emphasis that he wants to focus on. And that's because of the particular audience that he had in mind at the time when he brought his Gospel together, whose needs, I believe, he's slanting his gospel to meet. 
which, as I said right at the very beginning when we started to look at this, at John's Gospel, his audience is his fellow first century Jews, who after their initial rejection of the Gospel of Christ, he now wants to present again to them in the most effective way he can with the challenge of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And here this is what, what Gary Burge, what he has to say, about how this, he believes, affects John's telling of the story of Jesus here at this point in his gospel. And he says, what John has done is to reforge one theological dimension of Jesus on the cross. That is, throughout his passion, Jesus is sovereign. That's what John wants to highlight. He is not a victim. The cross is a fate that he has chosen voluntarily and that he controls. So, so do you see then how this helps us to understand why John missed out details like Judas' betrayal of Jesus with a kiss? Why instead it's Jesus who takes the initiative? Jesus who asks the question, verse 7, who is it? that you want. All these things, you see, happened. The curse that all happened. But what John, in particular, wants to emphasize is that though Jesus was betrayed by a man, yet at every point along the way, Jesus was in control. Jesus was fully aware of the monstrous nature of everything that was going to happen to him. Every point along the way, but he chose to endure it all, willingly and voluntarily, because of his great love for us. And that also you know, covers um, extra details that John includes that actually become so, so fitting and so relevant why he's done that. When you grasp this, this purpose of John and, and what he's trying to highlight at this point in his gospel. For instance, only John tells us the name of the high priest's servant who had his ear cut off by Peter. Only John does that. But when you learn that this man's name, Malchus, that this actually means my king. Well, you see, when you set this in the context of the fact that Jesus' aim at this point, as we've said, uh, sorry, John's uh, point, what he's trying to do at this point, is to highlight the fact, remember, that Jesus is sovereign. And suddenly, when you realize this, this name becomes symbolically significant. It's just so much more than maybe a meaningless, unnecessary detail. But let's move on now to look at what we said we'd do at the beginning. Look at the, the inimitable reaction of Jesus to the crisis of the cross and, and just see what lessons we can learn from it. And the first quality of Jesus that I believe we, we see just so very clearly here, won't surprise you. Because it is control. His control. Something I've just already spent a fair bit of time uh, talking about with you. So we won't labor this, but, but let me just first set it in its context and then just draw something of, it, of its practical application for us. So to begin then, the context. After the Last Supper, after this extended period of teaching and prayer, Jesus led his disciples out of the house that they were sheltering in, 
into the Jerusalem night. Now you see, we know that, that during this period, Jesus and his, and his disciples usually lodged in Bethany. And they, they walked in and out the one and a half miles from there to and from Jerusalem. But we're also told here that during this time, when they were in Jerusalem, that the disciples often spent time in a garden on the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, which means appropriately oil press. However you see, during the time of the Passover, that great central feast of Judaism, during that period, no Jew was allowed to travel beyond the limits of the city. So a journey to Bethany then was off limits to Jesus and the disciples. But a trip to the Mount of Olives, a trip to Gethsemane where it would seem some wealthy supporter had allowed Jesus access to this garden with his disciples to rest and pray, this was within the permissible limits. So then Judas, who had risen from the table at the Last Supper with betrayal in his heart, he knew with almost absolute certainty where Jesus would go at the conclusion of this meal. And he also knew that there was nowhere better for him to play his part in the evil plans of men. If you see the big fear of the Jewish leaders undoubtedly shared by Jesus, their big fear was that the the popularity of Jesus, demonstrated so powerfully by that welcome that he'd received when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that this, his popularity in a Jerusalem crowded to, to bursting point with those who'd returned from all around the world in pilgrimage to celebrate Passover, that this, this popularity might, when they arrested Jesus, spark off riots in protest. So there was no better place than this lonely garden in the dead of night on the outskirts of the city. No better place to put their plans into action. Their nervousness, though, is, is underlined by the fact that we're told that, that Jesus and the Jewish officials are accompanied by a detachment of Roman soldiers as they make this arrest. Because, you see, for the Jews to ask the Romans to give them help in a way that later undoubtedly would become public that was embarrassing. Though, interestingly, there are actually signs behind the scenes that at the highest level, there was much more interaction between the Jews and the Romans than certainly the Jewish hierarchy would have liked the general population to know. For example, Caiaphas, who was the high priest when Jesus was arrested, who orchestrated Jesus' trial and execution, execution. He was high priest for 18 years. For 10 of those years, Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor. But the same year that Pilate was removed from office, told to go back to Rome, Caiaphas was also in that year deposed as high priest. Just a coincidence? Perhaps. But it seems to me to be much more likely that once Caiaphas's Roman backer was removed, his own position was significantly weakened. But you see here, this demonically inspired collaboration, 
of the weak, greedy man, Judas, the corrupt religious leaders of Judaism, the worldly powers of Rome, here they think they have got Jesus just where they want him. That they are in control. Whereas in fact, it's the exact opposite that's going on. For Jesus knew exactly what was happening here. At the Last Supper, he made it clear that he knows that Judas, what Judas is about to do. And Mark 14, 42 in Gethsemane tells us that, that before Judas announced his arrival at the garden, that Jesus actually knew that he was there. He says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. And as he asks the question here, in verse 4 and 7, repeats it, Who is it you want? So he takes the initiative. With his response to their reply, Jesus of Nazareth, his response, I am he, quite literally flooring them. They drew back and fell to the ground. Now, of course, here Jesus is taking to himself the divine name. He's taking to himself God's name. I am, I am who I am. And so, whether these men here, who've been awed in Jesus' presence before during his ministry, dumbfounded by his teaching, overwhelmed by his authority, as they've sensed something of that wonder as they've seen him and heard him preach and teach in Jerusalem and the temple and streets day by day. Is it then that hearing him say these words here, hearing him claim this for himself here in this lonely garden in the middle of the night, is it that suddenly they're shaken with terror? They realize what they're about to do, shaken with terror at the thought of laying their hands on one whose divinity they will not yet acknowledge, but whose power and authority they cannot deny and do not know how to understand. Or is there maybe something more going on here? Is this one example of the kind of holy fear that people show again and again in the Bible when they realize that they stand in the presence of God. Like that that we see, for example, in Ezekiel 1, 28, Daniel 10, 9, Isaiah 6, verse 5. Do these men sense then, in some way, as they stand in Jesus' presence, that though they will not yet willingly acknowledge Him, yet still, in some way, they know that they stand in the presence of an overwhelmingly awesome and glorious God. So do they fall before him? Because they cannot help but do so. Is this a foreshadowing of what the Bible tells us is going to happen at the end of time? Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we can't be exactly sure what was going on here. But, you know, for me, in the light of the fact that as individuals, we are all so different and we're all 
unique. I would imagine that the reasons for what happens here, for this response from this crowd, ranges across the whole spectrum and in between of everything that I've suggested. But what we can all be sure of is that here John puts Jesus at the very centre of this incident. Who is it that you want? And that John emphasises that it's not evil men who imagine they're in control, who are in actual control here, but rather it's Jesus. Jesus, who knows what they're about to do, but who also knows that his Father in heaven is able to take their evil deeds, the worst that men can do, and he's able to use it in his sovereign plan. Jesus, who here reveals himself as God and who his accusers fall down before. It's Jesus who's in control. But what does this Christ's control in this unimaginable crisis. What does this have to say to us tonight? What relevance does this have for us? For we don't have Jesus' foreknowledge. We don't have his power or authority. We fall so far short of Jesus in every aspect of life. So of what relevance is his control in this crisis relevant for us? I believe in this way, in that he is our God. The God who is sovereign, the Christ who is sovereign, he is our God. And although there are many things in life that we're not in control of, many things, we don't know when things will happen, we don't know why they're happening, often we can't see what possible good can come out of a situation. But if we know our God, if we believe and trust in the God who out of the anguish of the cross brought the glory of salvation and the glory of the resurrection, then we have to trust that this same God, sometimes in ways that we'll never understand or fully while we're on this earth, we have to believe that this same God as his people turn to him, as they trust in him, as his people live in obedience to him, in whatever crisis they face, that he is able to bring light and glory out of the very darkest situation. To give you a paraphrase of the old song, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. The next quality Christ reveals here in this crisis is compassion. Compassion for poor Malchus, the high priest's servant, who is his ear cut off by Peter. Because Luke tells us in his account that Jesus healed him, Luke twenty-two, fifty-one. But far more important here, Jesus shows compassion, shows care for his disciples. For though he knows the full horror of what soon he's going to go through, yet still here at this moment, as he takes a significant step towards us, Jesus does not focus on himself. He doesn't turn in on himself. Rather, his concern, his first thought, 
is for those who the Father has given into his hands to be loved and cared for. So verse 8 and 9 we read, If you are looking for me, then let these men go. And John goes on, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now, of course, here at one level, this has got to be seen in this actual context we found here. We find here that, that Jesus here in the garden at this moment makes sure that all of the enmity and hostility is directed towards him and that his disciples are safe, secure, and free. But you know what? I also believe that this here is a picture that this points towards. All that Jesus did for us, all that he achieved for us and won for us at the cross. That he took upon himself the pain and punishment that should have been ours. That he there bore the weight of all our sin. He took upon himself all the enmity and hostility of evil men. And he even took upon himself God's wrath, his holy wrath, the inevitable righteous reaction of a holy God to our sin. Jesus stood in our place, took all that upon himself. He saved us. And because of that, we now know that we are safe, that we are eternally secure in his hands that he will not lose one of those he's been given. And he did all this because of his great heart of compassion. He did it because he loves us, because he cares for us. So how is this then, Christ's compassion in crisis, how is this relevant tonight to us? Well, I believe in this way. In the, when we are in a crisis... The ability to care about others, the ability to show compassion and care towards others is, I believe, a sure sign of someone who's living close to Jesus. Someone whose life is committed and submitted to Jesus. And so, who is living a life that's full of the Spirit of Jesus. Now, an incident that for me illustrates something of this is something that happened on the U.S transport ship Dorchester during the Second World War. And what happened was that the Dorchester was struck by a torpedo from an enemy submarine. And immediately this happened, it began to sink very quickly and, and total panic broke out. There were four chaplains, though, on board the Dorchester. George Fox, Alexander Good, John Washington, and Clark Polian. And these four chaplains rallied together they began handing out life jackets to people and then directing them to where they could go to get on the lifeboats to get to safety. But when the life jackets ran out, they gave away their own. As the ship was going by, survivors in the lifeboat saw these four men still standing on the deck with their arms linked together, singing hymns and praying. That is compassion. That's care in a crisis. That's a sign of the life of Jesus. The final quality I believe Jesus reveals here in this crisis is commitment. Commitment. 
Here, Jesus is 100% committed to doing the Father's will and by so doing, revealing the Father's glory. No matter the pressures, no matter what's going on around him, the different things that are coming at him, that is his commitment. And nowhere is this more clearly demonstrated than his reaction and his words to Peter following Peter's hopeless, botched attempt at rescuing Jesus by attacking this arresting party. His words in verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now you see, this, this cup is the same cup that Jesus brings before the Father in his prayer in Gethsemane. It's reported in Mark 14, verse 36. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. But you see, in the background of all this, in the Old Testament, the cup is the symbol of God's wrath that's aroused by sin. The cup is the symbol of the inevitable, that inevitable reaction of a holy God to sin. And you see, this cup should have been poured out on us. All the ones who've sinned, we are the ones who should have faced God's judgment. We are the ones who should have had this cup handed to us. But Jesus, he took the cup that was ours. And then on the cross, he drained that cup to its very dregs. And he did it all because he loved us and because he was wholly committed to obeying the Father's will, to living for the Father's glory, no matter what that might cost him. So how does this, Christ's commitment in crisis, how does this apply to us? In, in what way is this relevant to us? I believe in this way. We won't always fully understand the circumstances we find ourselves in life. We won't always fully understand why we're facing the hardships, going through the troubles, suffering in the way that we are. We won't. But you see, God doesn't promise that Christians won't face crisis in their lives. God doesn't promise that Christians won't have to endure suffering, that Christians won't go through times of trouble. Now, what he calls us to do is to follow Jesus by being obedient and living for his glory no matter what life brings our way. That's God's call to us. And then what he promises. What he promises is not that he'll rescue us from every trouble, but rather that he will stand with us in our troubles and that he will strengthen us and empower us and that he will reveal his glory to us, in us, and through us. In the midst of all the crisis, all the heartache, all the troubles that we face in life. You see, that's what God did 
for Jesus at the cross. That's what he'll do for us. He'll enable us to live for his glory. And nothing matters more than that. Let's come and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the example of Jesus that leaves us feeling awestruck and so aware of our own weakness and frailty. But Lord, the great thing is you know us. You know us in our weakness. And you just ask us to give our weakness to you. You ask us to come to you in our pain and in our heartbreak. And you just promise that as we turn to you, that you will carry us through. That you will reveal your glory in us, to us, and through us. Lord, may that be the desire of each of our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.